Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Keener, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Hey, Jane, do you remember a little while ago when we did a podcast about the Navajo Code Talkers in World War II? Yeah, that was one of your favorites in particular. I love the Navajo Code Talkers. Well, there's another minority group that contributed very, very much so to the success of the Allied forces in World War II that we didn't cover in that podcast. And I believe we said we were going to save it for another day, and that day is today. So... um Buckle up tight, because we're going to talk about the Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah, this is a really cool African-American um, air um, Army Air uh, Corps in, during World War II, and they contributed a lot to the war. But to give you some context, before that, African-Americans weren't allowed to fly at all in the military. In addition to that, the whole military was segregated mm-hmm. into units and throughout um, World War II, and it took... I think efforts like the Tuskegee Airmen and a lot of other African-American heroes during World War II to really change that policy. Desegregation was made official through Executive Order 9981, issued by President Harry Truman. Now, an executive order, just to bring you up to speed, is um, a statement from the president, and they've been in practice since George Washington's administration, and they're made uh, constitutional by Article 2, Section 1. Basically, an executive order guides federal agencies to carry out laws and policies that Congress has passed. And I've gotten some good information about executive orders from a website called thisnation.com, And the website explains that executive orders don't have to be approved by Congress, but it is a statement directly from the president and what he says goes. He's the commander in chief and he's the chief executive and he lays the laws of the land. Yeah, and this is a really important point to bring up is that um, it's not subject to legislative vote. So when something, like especially in this case, when something uh, will have a lot of difficulty passing through uh, Congress, the uh, the president can in certain circumstances circumvent that, that route. By issuing the executive order. And there's a couple of variations on the typical executive order. And one is uh, a statement that pertains to defense and security. And another one is more ceremonial in nature. Hmm. The example that thisnation.com gave was National Bring Your Kid to Work Day, which we actually had at the HowStuffWorks.com office last week. Oh, I didn't know that was an executive order. That's interesting. Apparently so. Apparently so. And what you mentioned before about presidents using the executive orders to circumvent Congress, this was a really sticky issue that came up during the Bill Clinton administration. And he was known to pass hundreds upon hundreds of executive orders to get by Republicans in Congress, essentially. Hmm. And I think he's still very much critiqued for doing so. But... Some pretty famous ones in history are 9981, which, as we've learned, was Truman's statement to integrate the military, and then Eisenhower's uh, executive order to desegregate schools. The Kennedy and Johnson era passed executive orders to help end discrimination in federal housing. And then Reagan actually issued an executive order to prevent federal funds being used for campaigns about abortion, which Clinton later overturned. So even just from these examples, you can see the wide scope that an executive order can pertain to. And 9981 was really, really important because if you look at the premise of World War II, it was essentially 
hinged upon the fact that Nazis were discriminating against the Jews. And so the idea that the United States would become involved in a war on foreign soil that was about discrimination of an ethnic group, and yet within the United States, there was still discrimination toward African-Americans, it just seemed really, really contradictory. Yeah, and it it was really a shot in the arm to show Americans, I think, where racism could lead. You know, um, certain public figures before the 1930s and World War II were behind eugenics, and I think it had more acceptance at this point, but then when you saw where that led um, mm-hmm. in Nazi Germany, you know, you can make the point that the American public didn't know everything that was going on during the Holocaust until after the war, but they did know some uh, racist laws that were going on, discriminatory laws against the Jews uh, during the Nazi era. So you can definitely see how the Americans saw where eugenics was leading. And I think this was really a reflection. It, it, it made them look upon themselves a little harsher about their own discriminatory uh uh, laws and say like, well, we can't really throw rocks, you know, if, if we're if we live in a glass house. Right, exactly. And that's what's so poignant about the order. And you can look it up online. You can go to trumanlibrary.org and find a copy of the executive order. It's from July 26, 1948. And I'll just read part of it. It is hereby declared to be the policy of the president that there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. This policy shall be put into effect as rapidly as possible, having due regard to the time required to effectuate any necessary changes without impairing efficiency or morale. And... A little bit later in the podcast, we're going to get to the language that Truman used and how people in Congress actually manipulated it to, uh, uh, I guess, prolong integration in the military. But the executive order that Truman issued would not have been possible, I don't think, without the successes of the Tuskegee Airmen, really proving that integration wasn't just necessary on the grounds of you know, equality for all mankind, but mm-hmm. because... This group proved that African-American pilots in the military had such bravery and valor and such skill, they could not be ignored and treated as unequal anymore. Yeah, and uh, we should also mention that, you know, when you think of the civil rights movement, it didn't really take effect until the 50s and 60s, but you have some sort of uh, very important predecessors to people like um, Martin Luther King Jr. in in A. Philip Randolph and Grant Reynolds, and they were really active during this time. They they ended up being very active in, in, in pushing for the executive order 9981, but before that, they were very active in pushing uh, Franklin Roosevelt into mm-hmm. issuing executive order 8802, and this banned discrimination in industries that had federal contracts, which was very important when um, the war was breaking, breaking out in Europe and the United States was active in a lot of war production, and so this order made it possible for a lot of jobs to open up for African-Americans. And this prompted a mass uh, migration of African-Americans out of uh, the Jim Crow South. Mm -hmm. So they were moving to cities that, you know, discrimination was still certainly present, but not as um, severe as in the South. You're talking about places like Los Angeles and Seattle and Detroit. Yeah, so um, they're really enjoying new freedoms. They had a sense of empowerment at this time. And so you can see um, with this initial FDR uh, executive order, things starting to change and the seeds of the civil rights movement starting. And this uh, 
you know, it leads into the the idea of the Tuskegee Airmen because the civil rights leaders also pushed for a change in the rule about how African Americans were banned from flying in the military. And when this changed, the War Department created the 99th Pursuit Squadron of the U.S. Army Air Corps. And we should note, this wasn't the Air Force because the Air Force didn't quite exist right. yet. But And if you look at the, the history of the Tuskegee Airmen and even history of African Americans in World War II, there's a lot of really, really great stories of men who really just threw off the chains of oppression and, and took the opportunity to serve their country. And one that comes to mind and one that Jane's written about in this fantastic article about the Tuskegee Airmen is Doris Miller, who was a cook on the USS West Virginia. And he happened to be there in Pearl Harbor, the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked. And he'd actually been a ordered to abandon ship. He actually manned a 50 caliber anti-aircraft machine gun and shot down some Japanese planes. Even though he had no training. training. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And uh, it was just, it's a great story, especially in, this is the beginning of American, uh, the American entrance into the war. And immediately Uh you see this, this heroism, this, this valor from an African American. Precisely. And so, um, I think that the civil rights organizations that existed at this time would use examples like the, you know, the Doris Miller story and then other examples of African Americans showing valor and, and saying, with training, imagine what these men could do. And mm-hmm. so this leads us to uh, Tuskegee, Alabama. Yeah, that's right. And so I mentioned they created the squadron, um, 99th. They decided to train them at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, which also had an airfield there. It was a segregated, obviously. There was seg- segregation still going on at this point. But it was it was a great move forward because they were finally able to fly in the military. And, and they, yeah, yeah, they started out with single-engine planes. Mm-hmm. And they were led by Captain Benjamin O. Davis, Jr. And he would later become the first African-American general in the Air Force. But I think he was known for being a real disciplinarian. Yeah, and interestingly, his dad became the first African-American uh, general in the Army. He came in with with some credit, you know, uh, some distinguished family there. So I think that family in particular made some big strides uh, for African-Americans in, in the military. They started out with training in areas like navigation and meteorology, and those who qualified went on to the airfield for pilot training. And they first class graduated in March of 1942, but there was one more year of training before they would actually get to fight in the war. And their first real opportunity, or their entree into the war, I should say, was the Allied invasion of Italy. Yeah, and this happened where their first mission happened June 2nd, 1943, and they flew uh, P-40 Warhawks. This was a very successful attack. And a month later, they actually successfully uh, fought the German Air Force. So they started out with a bang. Unfortunately, there was a, a lag after that where they weren't, they didn't have um, kills on their record for, for a few more months after that. So the uh, the colonel of the fighter group that they were a part of were really dis- was really dissatisfied with the 99th Tuskegee men. And he uh, was so upset at them, he actually filed a complaint. And he said that they weren't aggressive enough in the in fighting, and uh, he said that they also lacked discipline, which is a real strike. I mean, obviously, you have this experimental first African-American uh, squadron flying, and you have their colonel immediately, you know, issuing this complaint about them. It, was, it really could have dissolved um, the experiment uh, in- entirely. So, And I'm inclined to believe that... This, the trajectory of this story of the Tuskegee Airmen isn't too different from what we learned about 
with the Navajo code talkers, the idea that these men were trained so thoroughly mm-hmm. and then sent to help people in the field communicate messages, but they weren't used properly. People didn't fully understand what their mission and their purpose there was. And so they were deemed worthless and yeah, unhelpful. You could, you and could it, say that when they got there, people had headed out for them. So maybe yeah. they started off. You know, you know. And until these men were really able to prove that they knew their stuff, they were skilled, they just needed better direction. And they yeah. needed more seamless integration into the war front mm-hmm. to and really Davis, be helpful. Yeah, Davis really argued that point, And that's really what prevented them from dissolving entirely is that mm-hmm. he was able to, when the complaint was filed, he was able to argue for the Tuskegee Airmen and and. Uh, they did an investigation and found that, you know, they were doing just as well as everybody else in their mm-hmm. in their circumstances. So they were able to go back into combat. Uh, January 1944, uh, the squad- squadron helped fight a German air invasion and shot down 12 planes. And this was able to get them a unit, the, get the unit, a uh, distinguished uh, unit citation. So this was one of their first, uh, you know, just prestigious awards for something they had done. Right. And so in some, in World War II, there were at least 909,000 African Americans serving in the military with 500,000 of those overseas. So with those numbers and with the distinguished unit citation, we have concrete evidence that these are very effectual men and they are serving their country. And so that's when we have the beginning of the executive order coming into play. To give you some more context on what was going on in the government regarding these civil rights issues in the military, during the 40s, you see a lot of really um, monumental Supreme Court cases regarding civil rights, at at home at least. Um, In 1944, they uh, banned all-white political primaries that were occurring in the South. And uh, two years after that, they um, ruled uh, that segregation in, in interstate bus travel was unconstitutional. So you see the Supreme Court getting in line with the civil rights issues at this time. And also Harry Truman at this time, he um, wrote that he saw the hypocrisy going on in the fact that his troops were overseas promoting democracy, promoting acceptance, and at the same time his own military was segregated. And so you have the president and the Supreme Court in line with trying to push this this uh, civil rights issue. But unfortunately at the time, Congress had a lot of Southern congressmen in it that were uh, blocking a lot of civil rights uh, laws at this time, like anti-lynching uh, legislation. Yeah. And that's not to say that Southerners were the only barriers to really fulfilling the orders of 9981, the executive order. I think that once it was actually put into play, there were nearly five years, is the the common number that I keep seeing, five years that passed before people really began to fully integrate African-Americans into the military and to treat them with acceptance and with dignity and with camaraderie that is befitting yeah, you know, a, a man of your equal rank in the military. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, with the events leading up to the actual order, you have, uh, I mentioned Randolph and Reynolds earlier, the civil rights leader. They actually formed the Committee Against Jim Crow in Military Service and Training. And when they formed that, they actually uh, sent a letter to Truman in 1948 threatening that if he didn't make this order of, of a military integration, that the African-American youth would actually boycott the draft. And this was a huge 
issue for Truman, especially because he was actually in an election year. 1948 was an election year for him. He's coming up to re-election. So you have this situation where, you know, he wants the the black vote at this time. And now it's 10%, right? Right. I mean, African-Americans made up about 10% of the population in America. Mm -hmm. So the black vote was a significant part of his his re-election. And this was able to solidify it. And... Making promises like this is um, not something that ended with Truman. If you'll recall that in Barack Obama's campaign, he actually promised to uh, overturn the sort of don't ask, don't tell policy in the military, because right now uh, gays and lesbians aren't mm-hmm. allowed to serve with, with full disclosure. We, yeah. we have the, the Clinton era of the don't ask, don't tell policy. Sort of a compromise. Yeah. Sort of a compromise, but from what I understand, it can be more restrictive than helpful, the idea that you serve you know, with a mask over your identity, and you serve in a little bit of fear. Uh, but now, with recruitment at an all-time low, people are willing to overlook hmm. the don't ask, don't tell policy. And yeah. pretty much anyone who's willing to go and fight in the war is sort of being tapped into service. Yeah, so you can see sort of uh, the executive order language saying race, color, religion, and national origin. You but can see sexual orientation, orientation yeah, added right. to that. Sure. Exactly. And the don't ask, don't tell policy is almost 16 years old now, if you can believe mm. that. I can't believe 16 years have gone by. Yeah. But on a happier note, um, back in line with the valor and bravery of the Tuskegee Airmen, George Lucas, famous, of course, for what, what's that little movie about? Oh, I think I don't it's... Know. Star Star Wars, I think. That sounds right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, he made a movie like Star Wars or something. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm going to get flack from the tech team on that one. I'm very much into that. And I read on the Daily Planet that he's been wanting to do a film about the Tuskegee Airmen for almost 20 years, and he has finally begun filming in Europe a movie called Red Tails, and it's going to star... Cuba Gooding Jr., Terrence Howard, Neo, and Method Man. Yeah, it's cool because Cuba Gooding Jr. was actually he played Doris Miller in in the uh, Pearl Harbor movie a few years ago well, that we've talked about go. before. So that's really appropriate. I yeah. think it's it's a long time coming because it's the story is made for Hollywood. I it think. is, and one of the directors that he's got on board is Anthony Hemingway, famous for his work with HBO's The Wire. And again, entertainment news. I'm sure that some of these details are subject to change. So and but here now, if- when they do come out, hopefully we'll be talking about it on our blog as well. Exactly, exactly. Jane and I blog every day about the latest in politics, uh, history news, uh, discoveries, everything. (laughs) Everything, really. So if you haven't seen our blog yet, you'll probably get a a chuckle and maybe even learn a little something. And be sure also to send us your feedback at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And if you want to learn more about the Tuskegee Airmen, you can read the article on what this podcast is based called What Was So Important About Executive Order 9981 on howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 